God's kingdom cannot be stopped by any means of earthly oppression. Take off John's head and there's 12 people ready to replace him. All of God's Word is rich and profound, and we know this to be true. All of God's Word is inspired, and all of it contains truth that's vital for our life. But not all of God's Word is equally rich. Some sections of God's Word are just dripping with theological richness or uh, points of application that are particularly more poignant than other sections of Scripture. But usually it's the case that when we approach those sections, we know what's ahead of us. For example, I don't know of any expositor of God's Word that's going to open up John chapter 1 and be surprised and say, oh wow, I just didn't know that there was so much richness in John chapter 1. Or John 16 through 19, the upper room discourse with Jesus and His apostles. Ephesians 1, we said repeatedly as we were working through that, that this we knew that we were in one of the richest portions of God's Word. Genesis chapter 1 or uh, Colossians 1, Romans 8, 9, and 10. All those sections of Scripture, as we turn to them, we know that we are approaching a rich section of Scripture and we need to slow down and pay particular attention. Sometimes, though, this happens infrequently, but sometimes God's Word surprises us with its richness, particularly in the points of application. This section before us is one of those sections in which you might be taken off guard which the, with the richness of the section before us. The section before us to which we'll turn today and next week, possibly a third week, but at least two weeks. The section that we'll turn to today is dripping with richness in terms of its points of application to our lives. And so we will slow down just a bit, take our time walking through this. This is a section of Scripture that will quite honestly disgust you. It is a morally disgusting section of Scripture. This section of Scripture is the moral equivalent to seeing something disgusting or encountering a disgusting odor. Take that into the moral level, and that's this section of Scripture. At multiple points, you on a moral and an ethical sense are going to say, Ooh, this is just awful. So this is not a pleasant passage of Scripture, but this, script, this passage of Scripture like none other, at least in the Gospel of Mark, is going to zero in on a number of things for us. The issue of the human conscience. It's going to zero in on that. It's going to zero in on the the enlightenment, those who have received enlightenment and yet refuse to submit. It's going to zero in on so many of the sins of the heart, and it's going to expose some of these things for us in sometimes a very painful way. So with that brief introduction said, let's just begin by reading the section from verse 14 down through verse 29. We'll make it through right around maybe verse 18 today. So beginning from verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, or John the Baptizer has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not 
For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with others to bring John's head. I'm sorry, with orders to bring John's head. He went in and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is a very unique portion of Scripture, and I always enjoy pointing out the unique aspects of passages of Scripture when we come to them. And this is a tremendously unique section of Scripture because this is the only passage in all of John's Gospel that is not explicitly about Jesus, that does not have Jesus as explicitly as the subject, as the main actor, or at least be directly about Him in some way. This is a lengthy passage of Scripture that only on a side manner is about Jesus. If This is a passage of Scripture zeroing in on John the baptizer, this man Herod, King Herod is called here, his wife, the dancing girl, the guest, the head on a platter. We all know the story. We're familiar with the story, but its uniqueness is going to be striking to us. As we mentioned earlier, this is probably the most morally disgusting passage in all of Mark's gospel, one of the most ethically disgusting passages in all of Scripture. We can see the plain and obvious reasons for that, the, event, the events that take place, but there's much more even behind the surface because this is, this is far more than just a story of a pagan king executing one of God's prophets. It's far more than that. This is a story that follows a pattern that we've seen since early on in God's Word. The pattern is the, the pattern of God's anointed prophet confront, confronting the evil ruler, the evil powerful man. It all started way back when Moses confronts Pharaoh and said to Pharaoh, in the name of the living God, I say, let my people go. It went from that to we remember, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they stood before Nebuchadnezzar and they, they, said, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, what, whatever, you, you, bow all you want, but you won't find us bowing to no statue. You can throw us in a furnace and our God can preserve us. Even if He doesn't save us from the furnace, you won't see us bowing before a statue. It goes on from there. Daniel, of course, confronting the mighty kings. We see Nathan, the prophet, confronting David, saying to David, you are the man. Elijah confronting Ahab with his sins. We also, of course, recognize that all of this is culminating as Jesus stands before Pilate and will say to Pilate, you have no authority over me whatsoever had it not been granted to you from above. And my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. If my kingdom were an earthly kingdom, my people would be fighting, but they're not fighting. Because I am a king and my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. So all of this will culminate, culminate, of course, as Jesus stands before Pilate. 
But then this is the last in a succession of mighty prophets of God who stand before the rulers, the secular, pagan, unbelieving rulers of the people and will say to them, thus says the Lord. The main point of the passage, well, there's several main points of the passage, but I think the main, main point of the passage is plain to see. It's obvious. We'll go ahead and point this out as we begin. The main point of the passage is God's kingdom cannot be stopped by any means of earthly oppression. Take off John's head and there's 12 people ready to replace him. That's what the story is pointing us to, along with other unique aspects as well. The beheading of John will not silence him. Instead, the kingdom not being stopped by any human opposition. We even get the sense that the one who lops off the head of John the baptizer knows this as he recognizes, of course, in John the baptizer, he recognizes the spirit of John in Jesus. So now, with that introduction being um, being given, let's just begin from verse 14. And as we begin from verse 14, we read this, King Herod, and we'll stop there. So making it through a whole two words, let's just pause right here with King Herod, and let's just take some time. We like to do this from time to time when it's appropriate. We like to take some time and just understand the historical context surrounding this passage, because this passage has a richness of historical context behind it, context that has to do with this man called King Herod, that has to do with Herodias, that has to do with John the Baptizer, others involved in the story. None of those things do we need to understand in order to understand the point of the passage. None of the things that are not given in the text are necessary. The point's plain and obvious. We don't need to understand anything not given in the text in order to see the point of the text. I hope we all understand that. However, with that being said, it is nonetheless helpful to fill, to, to sketch out, to fill in the background on a number of, of events and uh, characters in order to, should we say, put more color or more vividness into the point that the passage is already making. So let's just take a little bit of time and talk about this historical context behind, first of all, King Herod. So King Herod, Mark here is making a sideways jab. He's making a pejorative insult to this man, King, as he calls King Herod. However, that would all miss us. We would uh, that would be lost on us. Did we not take a little bit of time and understand what Mark is saying as he begins this passage by saying King Herod? Mark is the only gospel writer that will call him by the name of King Herod. Matthew and Luke both relate the same story, but neither of them call this man King Herod. In fact, nowhere else in all of history is he called King Herod. He is called instead Herod Antipas. So we'll get to that in just a little bit, and then in doing so, we'll see what exactly Mark is doing by calling him two times in the passage, the king. So let's just talk for a few minutes about Herod, because Herod can be a confusing character in Scripture, because, well, for the, the main reason is there's so many of them. There's no less than five Herods in the Bible, and all these Herods can get a little bit confusing to us if we aren't clear on who's who and who's not who. So let's just begin by understanding who the Herods are and who the Herods are not. The reason there are so many Herods in our New Testament is because Herod was a family name, not, not so much a personal name. It was a family name. And it was the name of the dynasty known as the Herodian dynasty, which replaced the Hasmonean dynasty. If you think way back from your ancient history, high school or college courses, the Hasmonean dynasty was replaced by the Herodian dynasty. So a dynasty, as we know, will be a family of successive rulers over a particular area. So the Herodian dynasty took over as the rulers in the land known as Palestine, and it all began with a man by the name of Herod the Great. 
Herod the Great, born in 78 BC, he ruled all of Palestine up to the year 4 BC. So he ruled the largest area, which would include Judea, Perea, uh, Samaria, Idumea, Galilee, even parts of the Decapolis. He ruled all, or not all, but he ruled the largest section of what was the ancient kingdom of Israel. And he did all this under the rulership of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, of course, was the dominating force in the land of Palestine as well as all of the developed world at that time. And as Rome did in many places, they appointed rulers or puppet rulers in place of themselves in particular areas. They found that that worked a whole lot better than direct rule themselves. So they appointed King Herod the Great as the ruler of all this land. Now, Herod the Great was a man who was ethnically called an Idumean, meaning he was from the region of Idumea. Idumea is a land that was populated by what we know of as what used to be called the Edomites. The Edomites were the descendants of that incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. Remember that back from the story in Genesis. Keep that in mind. That'll become very important next week. That Herod and all of his family, their family ethnically came from an incestuous background. So this Idumean by the name of Herod, he was a nasty person. He was a violent, he was bloodthirsty. He was a very effective person at seizing power and holding power and holding it violently. He was a murderous person. He uh, was very, very much unlike. He was the one in Matthew chapter 2, if you recall, of course, that when it comes to his attention that a king has been born, he does that little thing pretending he wants to worship, but then what he's really seeking to do is kill the, the one who's supposed to be the king, and he ends up killing all the, the baby boys. That was this Herod. That was the bloodthirstiness of this Herod. He was very much hated. He was the head of this Herodian family, and bloodthirsty he was. He set the tone for the rest of his children. So he killed the, the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. He was known for that. He was the one on his deathbed. He issued an order to, to round up 3,000 of the leading Jewish citizens, which they did. They rounded up 3,000 businessmen, politicians, uh, city councilmen type figures, 3,000 innocent people put them in jail under orders that as soon as he died, they were to be executed because Herod did not want Jerusalem to celebrate when he died. And he knew that when he died, there would be a party and he didn't want that. So he said, round up 3,000, kill them when I'm dead. That'll keep them from, from celebrating. Fortunately, the, the order wasn't carried out, but that's the type of man with whom that we were dealing. So Herod the Great, nasty fella, on the inside and the out, he had some 10 wives. I tried to find out if any of those were simultaneous. I don't know if any of those were simultaneous or if they were all sequential. But 10 wives, by those 10 wives, he had some 15 children. Now, those children were a mess in and of themselves. His oldest three children, they at first didn't get along with one another, but then they figured out that they hated their father more than they hated one another. So his three oldest boys teamed up and they, they uh, conspired together to kill their father and take over their father's kingdom. He found out about it and killed them instead. He later on, of his ten wives, his favorite of his ten wives, he began to suspect her of conspiring against him. So he killed her and her entire family as well. That's the type of man with whom that we're dealing, Herod the Great. So on Herod's deathbed, he had a will in place, and the will stated that his entire kingdom would go to one of his sons, a man by the name of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the main figure in the passage today. 
Herod Antipas was named in his will, in Herod the Great's will, as the sole successor of his entire kingdom. However, mysteriously on his deathbed, his will was rewritten. Nobody really knows how, but it was rewritten to not to say that not only was Herod Antipas not the sole inheritor of the kingdom, but instead he would share it with two of his brothers. Actually, two of his brothers and one of his sisters, a sister by the name of Salome. She never actually ruled anything, so we don't know exactly what happened with that. But he and two of his brothers, one brother by the name of Philip, Herod Philip, or and another by the by the name of Herod Archelaus. So the will, of course, was contested upon his death, as naturally would be the case even today. If somebody changes their will a week from death, then that will is, is going to be contested. So it was contested. They took the case to Caesar. At the time, it was Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus ruled in favor of the, the present will, and he said that's what's going to stand. The kingdom will be, be divided among three. So that was the first Herod. Now the second, third, and the fourth Herod are the three brothers. The one brother, Herod Antipas, who is the central figure in our story today. We'll talk about him in just a little bit. But another of his brothers was Herod Philip. Herod Philip received just a tiny little bit of land to rule way up in a corner in an area that we've talked about recently called the Decapolis. So he had this little inconsequential little area to rule. He went up there to rule that area. Nothing ever happened. He never did anything. In fact, he was such a do-nothing sort of ruler that History really isn't even sure. There's a there's another man by the name of Herod II, and we're not even sure if he was the same person as Herod Philip because he did so little. He's so little known. But he rules this tiny little area in the corner of the kingdom that's referred to as the Decapolis, a section of the Decapolis. But then another brother by the name of Archelaus, he was given the part of the kingdom, which was Judea and Samaria. And Idumea. So we recognize those three parts of the kingdom, Idumea, but mainly Samaria and Judea. Judea, of course, is where Jerusalem is, and we recognize Samaria. So Archelaus takes control, and if we thought his father was bloodthirsty, then Archelaus is ten times more bloodthirsty. Within a few days of taking power, one of the first things that happens is a delegate comes to him, and they say, Archelaus... The people were just really burdened by taxes. Can we sit down and talk about how much taxes we're paying? And can we possibly get some relief from taxes? Archelaus' response, kill 3,000 people. So he rounded up 3,000 people that he thought was responsible for this delegation to ask for tax tax relief and killed them. Well, that upset a few people, as you might imagine. So they send the delegate to the Caesar. At the time, it was still Caesar Augustus. They send a delegate to Caesar to say, we want direct rule from Rome instead of this this man Archelaus ruling over us. He is so mean. He's so bad. He's so violent. He's so murderous. We want Rome to rule us directly. Rome denied that. And subsequently, of course, Archelaus was none too happy about the delegation. So what did he do? Murder some more people. And so there was a sequence of murders and protests and riots, more delegates to the Caesar, more murders, more protests, more murders, more delegates. Soon the Caesar finally uh, agreed and and instead he he takes Archelaus off the throne and instead he puts direct Rome, a direct rule over the region of Judea and Samaria under Roman rule by appointing a man by the name of, anybody guess? The direct rule of Rome over Judea and Samaria? Pontius Pilate. That's how Pontius Pilate came to be in control of Judea 
for the, for the trial of Jesus of Nazareth. You might have wondered why it was that other parts of Israel were ruled by these sub-rulers, these puppet rulers, but instead Jesus stands before Pilate, who is direct, a direct ruler of Rome, and it's because of Archelaus and all the trouble he calls. And so they put a, a Roman ruler in place by the name of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate stays in power for several decades, about four decades, in Judea and Samaria. Archelaus is then taken out. He is then banished to a place by the name of Gaul, which we would think of as present-day France. So that was another brother. Then we talked about Philip. So now Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is at the center of our story today. So we'll be talking about him quite a bit today. But just a little bit about Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, and he had a Samaritan mother. So Herod Antipas had an Idumean father and a Sumerian mother, which, of course, put him in good graces with the Jews that he ruled over, of course. So Herod Antipas was given the, the area known as Galilee and Perea. He takes control in 4 BC, which is following the death of Herod the Great. Now, remember, Jesus is in Egypt at this point. And then the dream comes to Joseph saying, the one who wanted to kill you, he's dead. And so Joseph returns, but we're told that Joseph was afraid to go back to Judea. Why was he afraid to go back to Judea? Because who's in charge in Judea? Archelaus, even more murderous than his father. So instead, he returns to Nazareth, his hometown. So Jesus, from his earliest memory, Jesus never had a memory, a human memory, of any time of his life in which Herod Antipas was not the ruler of the region in which he lived. Virtually Jesus' entire life, Herod Antipas ruled the area in which Jesus lived. So this man, Herod Antipas, he was bloodthirsty as well, but he was more savvy with it. He was more of a, he was more of a politician than either his brothers or his father. He was smart enough to to read people, to know the people that he ruled in such a way as to get what he wanted without necessarily being quite so murderous about it. For example, one of the things that Herod Antipas did was he was the first and only of the Herodian rulers, or the, the Roman rulers for that matter, who did not mint coins with their image on it because he understood that that was a hot spot for the Jews. The Jews hated that. They hated having to use coins that had the image of the ruler on it because they associated that with idolatry, and rightfully so. Because we might ask, well, does that mean that our coins today are idolatry? No, it doesn't, because it's a totally different context. The Jewish coins and the coins minted by the Herodian leaders, they had explicit statements of divinity associated with particularly the Caesars. And so it wasn't like a quarter with George Washington's picture on it. It was like the picture of the, the ruler with words acclaiming divinity for him. So it really was a violation of the first commandment for the Jews. And the Jews hated that. Herod Antipas understood that. And so he didn't push that button. He accomplished a number of things. He built some cities. Tiberius was the best known city that he built. Tiberius, of course, we recognize that the Sea of Galilee was really named the Sea of Tiberius. That was the more common name because that city was on the Sea of Tiberias. So Herod Antipas, he rules for about 43 years. And as we noted earlier, Mark calls him King Herod. Now, what's the big deal there? Here's the thing. When Herod Antipas was given his kingdom by Caesar Augustus, he petitioned Caesar Augustus for the title king. Caesar Augustus denied it 
And Herod Antipas seethed over that for the rest of his life. Herod Antipas was a man that was extremely interested in what people thought about him. That was what made his boat float. His besetting sin, as we'll see through the passage, his besetting sin was the fear of man. He was extremely concerned about what people thought of him. And so he wanted the the title King Herod. Caesar knew that, and to keep him in check, denied him the title. Now, later on, about the year 36 or 37, another Herod, we'll get to him in just a minute, another Herod's going to come along by the name of Agrippa. Agrippa was one of the grandsons of Herod the Great. Agrippa is going to be given a kingdom by the the Caesar that's in charge then, a man by the name of Gaius. And Gaius is going to give Agrippa the title, you guessed it, King Agrippa, because he's referred to as King Agrippa in the Acts. So Agrippa, the grandson or the nephew of Herod Antipas, is going to be given the title king, and that's going to sit even worse with Herod Antipas now. And so he will go back a second time and petition the Caesar once again for the title king. And he's going to do all that at the prodding of his wife Herodias. We'll talk about her in just a minute. So he's going to go, and in the midst of going there, his nephew, again, Agrippa, is going to convince the Caesar, Gaius, he's going to convince him that Antipas is plotting a revolt because he's got an army built up. We'll talk about his army in just a minute. That'll come into play when we talk about Herodias. But he's going to convince Agrippa, the nephew is going to convince the Caesar that Antipas, he's planning a revolt when he really wasn't. So he comes and he pleads with the Caesar, the new Caesar, once again, please give me the title of king. Well, not only does he not give him that title, but he then takes his kingdom from him and banishes him to Gaul as well as his wife Herodias. Now we see why it is that Mark calls him King Herod, don't we? Because Mark is writing to Romans and nobody knew the story like Romans. They knew all that the story about Gaius. They knew the whole story about uh, Augustus and they knew the whole story about Agrippa and how he was given the, the title king and how uh, Antipas wanted the title his whole life. And it was the wanting of that title that was his downfall. Do you see why, what Mark's getting at here? King Agrippa. And then later on, he's going to make sure to throw that king in one more time. And twice he's going to say, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. He didn't have a kingdom. He wasn't a king. And so Mark is making this sort of backsided sort of stab at him. You see how just beautifully the word of God is put together. 